This is the American Medical Association's COVID-19 Update Podcast. This is part of an ongoing series featuring critical insights from the physicians and healthcare professionals on the front lines of the pandemic. And yet, despite the case numbers falling to near the lows we experienced last summer, we know we're still a long way from putting the pandemic behind us, both physically, psychologically, and emotionally. AMA President Dr. Gerald Harmon and other experts unpack our new normal and the implications of moving into a post-pandemic world. One thing we know for sure is that while the pandemic will someday end, COVID-19 is going to be with us for the foreseeable future. So we got to understand what this means, how to protect the most vulnerable among us as we take steps to move past this pandemic and into a post-COVID change world. As part of the AMA's Thought Leadership Series, Dr. Harmon invites three physician leaders and experts to discuss the impact COVID-19 has had on the healthcare workforce. Dr. Georges Benjamin, Dr. Celine Gounder, and Dr. Stephen Perotti share their thoughts on the battle fatigue suffered by the physician workforce over the past two years and what can be done to address it moving forward. Here's Dr. Harmon. Today's conversation will focus on the impact of COVID-19 on our physician workforce, what we've learned, and how we can apply these lessons for the next phase of the pandemic. I'm Dr. Gerald Harmon, president of the American Medical Association and a family doctor in rural South Carolina for nearly 40 years. I've had the honor today to welcome in three special guests, each bringing his or her own unique experiences and perspectives to this urgent conversation. You know, we've learned a lot in our fight against this deadly coronavirus over the last two years. We've made advancements in how we test how we treat and how we care for patients infected with the virus. We've developed three safe and highly effective vaccines for COVID-19 and a remarkably short period of time, making them widely available to all who want them. And yet, despite the case numbers falling to near the lows we experienced last summer, we know we're still a long way from putting the pandemic behind us, both physically, psychologically, and emotionally. That's true for the public, and it's especially true for physicians in our entire healthcare workforce who've been under siege have been asked to shoulder the brunt of the pandemic from the beginning. Soon the nation's going to reach the one unthinkable tally of one million lives lost to COVID-19 in the U.S. That's just a heartbreaking tragedy that's unlike anything we've experienced in our lifetimes. Even for physicians, people who experience grief up close and, and know what it feels like to comfort the dying and their families, it's difficult to find the words to express what we've lost during the pandemic. In addition to be a family physician, I'm, I'm also an Air Force veteran. I've, I've served the country in the medical arena and the global war on terror and overseas operations after 9-11. So as a doctor and a, a military veteran uh, with combat experience, I've, I've, I've had experience with physical and emotional trauma. I, I know the signs and what to look for. And it's my opinion, two years into this tragedy, that our nation is suffering from a type of battle fatigue from our long fight with COVID and the full impact from this cannot be measured until long after this difficult period ends. And it will end eventually. We're seeing many states lifting public health mitigation measures such as indoor mask wearing. And, and while this represents a, a new phase of the pandemic, it's critical that these important decisions about public health be rooted in science and data and not driven by political pressures. Each one of us is eager to bring this painful chapter uh, in America's history to a close, but how we emerge from the pandemic, lessons we learn and apply moving forward the causes we fight for will go a long way towards preventing the next great health crisis from gripping our economy, our country. The actions we take now can help create a U.S. health system that, that better meets the needs of all people, not only the brave men and women in the medical workforce, 
but everyone who relies on our health system for the fulfillment of a long and a healthy life. One thing we know for sure is that while the pandemic will someday end, COVID-19 is going to be with us for the foreseeable future. So we got to understand what this means, how to protect the most vulnerable among us as we take steps to move past this pandemic and into a post-COVID change world. With me today to talk about this are three exceptional physician leaders and experts in their respective fields. We have Dr. Celine Gounder, Senior Fellow and Editor-at-Large for Public Health, Kaiser Family Foundation, and Kaiser Health News. She's also Clinical Associate Professor of Medicine and Infectious Diseases at NYU. We have to Dr. Stephen Perotti, Executive Vice President of External Affairs, Communications, and Brand at the Permanente Foundation, as well as an Associate Medical Executive Director for the Permanent Medical Group, which are parts of the California-based Kaiser Permanente Health System. We have Dr. Georges Benjamin. His contributions to organized medicine and public health are, are really too great to mention here. Dr. Benjamin currently serves as Executive Director of the American Public Health Association, following his time as Secretary of the Maryland Department of Health and Mental Hygiene under former Governor Paris Glendening. Welcome all three of you, and I thank you so much for being here. Dr. Benjamin, we might start our, our question and answer session with you. Let's look at the topic of surveillance. Surveillance measures such as case counts or percent positivity remain important in understanding the impact of the pandemic on the community. However, as we see mild and asymptomatic infections increase and unreported at-home testing become ubiquitous, how can we adapt surveillance measures to address these scenarios and what improvements could we make to our public health surveillance programs? Well, you know, the good news is that we really know how to do this. We really have um, ongoing surveillance programs for a variety of diseases. And while we started this pandemic with basically doing um, disease surveillance and case counts based on um, really controlled uh, testing that happened in hospitals and health departments, now we're gonna move to more population-based surveillance efforts. So we'll have laboratories that will be pre-designated and providers that we pre-designated to send in samples. Um, those will give us a sense of what's happening. We can also do very sophisticated studies so that we don't lose the variants that are out there. And using mathematical models, we'll be able to do um, uh, and manage how many cases are out there and, and really follow the trajectory. But let me also add the fact that we have this really new um, tool that really isn't quite new. We, we've done it before in, for diseases like polio, for example, and that is actually looking at sewage um, as a environmental measure. We now know that this virus um, is excreted in our, um, in our stool, ends up in our wastewater, and we can actually track um, the increases and decreases through sewage. And it turns out that's a marvelous way of getting an early indicator of when you have a new disease like this, that's an infectious disease entering the community. Thanks, Dr. Benjamin. Dr. Gounder, I might turn to you and, and ask you about the variants, you know? Uh, how should we address future variants that may be more transmissible. I know we're talking about even now uh, the BA2 variant, and it could lead to uh, severe illness, including possibly evading protection from our currently available vaccines. And then to follow on with that, do we think that maybe COVID could even become a seasonal respiratory illness, kind of like the influenza? So I think uh, that we have to acknowledge, start by acknowledging that there will be more variants. Uh, BA.2, the latest uh, subvariant of Omicron, is not the last variant we will have to contend with. And I think we need to acknowledge that reality 
and then prepare accordingly. And so that includes really investing in surveillance. We have dramatically ramped up the surveillance that we're doing for variants over the past uh, year or more. Uh, but there's much more work to be done on that front. And there are some specific gaps. Um, some of that is, is geographic. Some parts of the country are doing a more complete job of, of surveillance for variants than other parts of the country. But we also have a black hole when it comes to transmission in non-human species. We have now seen um, SARS-CoV-2 being transmitted, not just uh, by what we think is the original host, bats, but also any number of other uh, mammalian hosts, so deer, rats, uh, mink, and so on. And so unless we also extend our surveillance efforts to include uh, animal transmission, we could be flying at least partially blind as to what there may be to come. Now, uh, variants can be more transmissible. They can be immune evading, uh, as you alluded to. I think the good news is that even with a more infectious or transmissible variant, we have very, very good tools uh, to prevent infection and disease. I think where it becomes more challenging is if we do have to contend with a truly immune evading uh, variant, uh, Delta and uh, Omicron were partially immune evading, then we may find ourselves having to change our tools, in particular our vaccines and update our vaccines. Fortunately, our current vaccines have remained effective, uh, particularly if, if given a booster, we're able to override uh, some of those immune evading effects. But we may find ourselves at some point in a place where we do need to update our vaccines uh, because of immune evasion. As to whether uh, COVID is likely to become seasonal or not, we don't know the answer to that yet. Uh, it may, but seasonal may also mean different things in different parts of the country where seasonal in New York City, where I am might be uh, from Thanksgiving through January over those holidays and seasonal in other parts of the country, say Florida or other parts of the South, where they have very hot, humid summers, their seasonal might be the summer months when people go indoors to have that air conditioning, to stay out of the heat. And so much of this still remains to be seen. Great, great insight. You're exactly right. The season's almost in the eye of the beholder for sure. No question of it. Dr. Brody, I, I'm gonna uh, call on you if you would think about it. How can we continue to communicate? And I do this almost daily, even in my practice today, that vaccines and boosters are important, especially as we start thinking about moving past the pandemic. And uh, a couple of other questions to follow up. Could our COVID vaccine boosters become part of our yearly vaccinations, much as the annual flu vaccinations? And uh, then I may give you a follow up question about legal challenges and mandates for healthcare workers. But Steve, if you could answer whether we need to communicate that vaccines and boosters are important as we move past the pandemic, I'd appreciate your insight on that. Yeah, this is a great question, Dr. Harmon. And when I think about it, there are multiple levels of communication need to be happening. So one is what's happening in our own offices on a day-to-day -day basis and laying the groundwork of an understanding that there's evolution of what's going on with the variants, with the virus. Um, we know that immunity, even vaccine-based immunity, has a, a time duration to it um, and that it's time limited. And to set the expectation that it, don't be surprised, um, there will be another vaccine probably coming in your future. Um, and even laying the groundwork, and I can tell you just in my personal practice, the conversations are, it may be annual, at least for a, a time limited period. 
um, that expect new recommendations, uh, not just for adults, but bringing that into our pediatric practices um, and explaining those variations, knowing that we are in different series levels. You know, the six-month-olds to five-year-olds are going to be in a different place than, say, um, people that are between uh, five and 12. Um, and so being able to lay those expectations out in our individual practices is number one. And the second thing um, is syncing public health messaging um, with health system messaging um, and doing that at the federal, state, and local levels. Um, I think that's a huge opportunity where, you know, over the course of this pandemic, it's been tough, right? The, the recommendations have been coming fast and furious. Um, as we move into hopefully a more sustainable phase, um, being able to coordinate those messages so the general public is hearing the same thing on the airwaves, um, as well as in our offices, is going to be key. And actually returning some of those messages to actually the regular vaccine distribution system that we have used tried and true in the United States, which is through physician offices, through our clinics and our public health clinics, uh, you know, having signage that is understandable, um, reaching out on social media. Uh, in addition to traditional forms of media, I think is also key and important um, to counter disinformation, misinformation, um, and having that trusted voice there. Um, and by the way, it's not just physicians, uh, it's incorporating other practitioners, uh, nurses, our, our trusted voices. So arming them with these messages, I think is gonna be key. Um, when I think about, uh, is this gonna become annual in nature? I think we know enough now um, that you know, we referenced BA2. Um, I wouldn't be surprised if there's the next variant around the corner um, to be able to message that we expect, just like influenza vaccines, that we uh, vary what gets put into the influenza vaccines. Uh, that may very well occur here um, with COVID-19 vaccination. Um, and because of waning immunity, uh, that you may need vaccination on an annual basis, at least for the foreseeable future. Those would be the things that I would reinforce. Um, and I think that we can do collectively as public health and as health systems. Medicine doesn't stand still, and neither do we. AMA members don't just keep up with medicine, they shape its future. Help move medicine, join the movement. Visit ama-assn.org slash movingmedicine. Thanks, Dr. Prody. That aligns with what I'm seeing in my practices. And uh, I might ask uh, Dr. Gounder or Dr. Benjamin it, it, about their perspective on vaccines and with particular, uh, a, 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 maybe a commentary on vaccine requirements for healthcare workers. We've, uh, we've had it in my local healthcare system. It's been federally supported in the Supreme Court uh, system uh, about healthcare workers being expected to participate in vaccine programs. Uh, should would you comment on that? Should we uh, businesses require uh, employees to be vaccinated? There's also been some ruling about that, and and I have local issues here in my school district where uh, the teachers uh, have been uh, uh, expected to be vaccinated as well. It's uh, we know the vaccines are eligible for those ages five and up. It really it, it strikes me as a, a public health issue that we vaccinate as many eligible as we can in order to provide the best immunity and the best public health protection, but. Dr. Benjamin, if you and Dr. Gowner would comment on that, I'd appreciate your thoughts. All right. Let me just say, I, I believe we absolutely have to normalize these, these vaccines. Um, I, I'm a strong proponent 
of healthcare workers being um, vaccinated. Um, I, when I was practicing clinically, absolutely um, was vaccinated and I've carried that practice, you know, now throughout my life. Um, it protects me, it protects my patients, it protects my loved ones. Uh, so when you have a disease that is such so highly infectious and has the potential to be so highly lethal, it's absolutely essential that healthcare workers in the environment in which we practice, where people are so vulnerable um, that they absolutely need to be vaccinated. Now, the issue around workers, it depends on what you do, um, certainly. Um, there may be people that may not need to get periodic vaccinations as a, as, a, as a mandate. I would still recommend it clinically so they can protect themselves and their families. Uh, but if you work in a meatpacking plant, for example, you're working in very close quarters to others. You need to be vaccinated. If you're working in a, um, uh, in a setting in a school where children are there and those children are highly vulnerable, um, they, they, those teachers need to be vaccinated as well. Uh, if you're sitting at home, um, Zooming all day, <laughs> uh, and, and somehow you can protect yourself, um, you, may, you have a less of a need um, to protect others. But, you know, you've got grandma, you've got family members. And again, my clinical recommendation would be that they do that. Um, Dr. Grounder, your thoughts. I think we as public health providers, as healthcare workers, uh, we take on certain responsibilities, duties uh, as, as part of our profession. Uh, I think it is a privilege to be a doctor, a nurse, a healthcare provider. Um, we are led into people's lives in a way that is really unique. And I think that comes with certain responsibilities um, to protect those that we're caring for, the vulnerable. And so it is different. It is a different kind of professional calling uh, from others. Um, and there are certain things we're called upon to do, uh, certain risks that we run, uh, certain kinds of work hours that we're expected to show up for that are simply different from other professions. And so to me, being asked to get vaccinated sort of along with being asked to work 80 hours a week or being you know, uh, at risk for a needle stick injury and all that comes with that, you know, I think that is what it means to sign up to be a healthcare provider. And if that's not something you're willing to sign up for, it's really probably not the right profession for you. Uh, with respect to mandates, um, without getting into you know, whether I support or I'm opposed to mandates for certain settings, for certain kinds of people, what we do know is from the experience with influenza and influenza vaccination is that absent a mandate, we have never gotten above about 50% of adults vaccinated for the flu. And so that is, that is the reality. And so no matter how many incentives or encouragements or you know, whatever education we provide, absent a mandate, it's going to be very difficult to get to anywhere near uh, most people in this country vaccinated. I just want to sort of comment on this because you know we implemented a you know vaccine mandate at our institution just like yours. Um, want to call out that yes, mandates do drive adherence. That being said, there's a whole lot of work that goes underneath that. Um, and there's still a bunch of winning the hearts and minds of individuals. And I got to tell you, it was, it was complicated. It was tough to be a vaccine advocate, particularly with the third dose of the mRNA vaccines or the second dose of the J&J &J vaccine. Um, so I don't want to sort of downplay the need to do that one-on-one -on -one type communication 
Um, we want to retain our workforce. We know that our workforce, and you referenced this earlier, is tired. They're burned out. Um, and, and so we've got to be able to explain the why as much as explaining that there is a mandate. Um, want to speak directly about the employer mandate, which unfortunately was struck down by the Supreme Court. Um, what came of that, though, is that I think there is a greater connection between public health um, and the employer uh, community, um, both at the local levels. Um, and I can speak to, you know, at the national levels, uh, talking to, you know, CEOs at the business roundtable um, and others that they are keenly interested in protecting their workforce. Um, and while there may not be a mandate, I would hate to lose actually the connections that we now have um, going forward and, and being able to forge those connections and use those um, to push out the information that we were referencing earlier. Um, that is another means to get the word out. Um, so even absent a mandate, um, working with employers, um, being at the employer sites to give the vaccines as much as requiring them to come to us, um, bringing the vaccine to them is equally important. And one last thing, um, there's organized labor um, and being able to work with organized labor um, to make those connections, uh, if those are available um, in a given community, is another point of leverage uh, for both the public health and health systems. Dr. Proto, you're right. It, if there are any silver linings, and there are very few, but there are some silver linings to the pandemic and our response and our education afterwards, it's that we've learned to, to, to have relationships between uh, public health infrastructure, employers, uh, business leaders, healthcare officials across the country. Absolutely, we need to maintain those relationships. We've learned a lot going forward. We've also, to your point, found that not only can a physician be a trusted source of information and a healthcare advisor for the public at large and our patients, but it can be other folks that are influential, other members of the healthcare team, including other uh, community leaders who have been uh, rigorous in their study of the science, have been following the, uh, the data. And I think they also have taken on the role of trusted advisors that helps improve the public health of the nation. And I would also comment, Dr. Gowner, that when you talked about uh, it's a privilege to be a doctor, it sends chills up my spine. It's a privilege to be a healthcare worker because it is, it is such a privilege to be able to take care and, and earn the trust and keep the trust of our patients who, who give us their, their most vulnerable patients, but their most vulnerable family members, their most prized possessions, and they trust their lives to us. So it is a responsibility. And part of that is becoming vaccinated and becoming as safe a repository of healthcare for them. When they come to me, they want to know that I'm doing my best not to spread illness among them and their loved ones. So all of those are very good points and I appreciate it. One of, I want to comment on something else that we've talked about. We don't understand a lot about COVID. We don't understand a lot about the variants. We do need that. We do understand that vaccines are probably our very best protection right now against uh, serious illness and contracting the disease. I want to talk about long COVID, the post-COVID syndrome that we're all starting to see a little bit about now as we're two years into the pandemic. Uh, long COVID, we're still learning more and more. I, I saw some recent studies that suggest that uh, even those that are relatively uh, a mild with a disease of COVID may have some cognitive and or uh, neurologic deficits. So I, I wonder uh, if, if you might comment on that. I don't know if, if that would fall in the purview of Dr. Gellner, Dr. Prody, or Dr. Benjamin, but I'm, I'm worried about long COVID. A lot of my patients are asking me about it now and what to do and should we have special treatments and our screening for long COVID available. This is a really important topic, and um, it's it's one that's ripe for study, um, and, and it's going to require commitment, actually, 
Um, and, and I'm glad that act, there there are um, you know now commitments to actually um, fund uh, long term studies to look at the effects. We know that you know at least 15 percent, if not more, of uh, individuals who have uh, an episode of COVID and aren't vaccinated are at risk for developing uh, post acute COVID syndrome. Um, and you know within I, I know number of systems. Uh, you know, this is really ultimately is falling to the primary care physicians um, where they're initially diagnosing um, and then relying on specialty care to at least rule out anything that might need additional intervention. Um, you know, fortunately, many of the, the parts of the syndrome appear to be more time limited, but we don't know um, right now. Um, it's clear that these individuals need supportive care. Um, in various forms or fashion. Um, but I think the thing that I get for, for intervention right now that we need to emphasize is the need for vaccination. We know vaccination is protective against post-acute development of post-acute COVID syndrome. Um, it is one of the other arguments I think we need to be making much more publicly um, to our patients and to the general public um, that we need to protect against this. Um, as a health system writ large, uh, I think we actually do need to build this into our operating plans uh, for you know, what might be another wave of individuals and illness that we are gonna have to care for on a longer term basis in our clinics. Um, and, and what that planning needs to look like really is why we need to study you know, the image of, of COVID is going to be all these people with long COVID. Um, the fact that this uh, virus attacks almost every single organ system uh, and it has various impacts on it um, makes it very difficult to even get a really good case definition. But I know the NIH is studying it right now. And I think as they get a better sense of both the, the impact and the, um, the spectrum of this disease, we're gonna get a better sense of how best to treat it, um, how best to identify people with it. Uh, but I, you know, the, cha the big challenge is the long-term cost. The, 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 cha the challenge that um, primary care physicians in particular are gonna have with people who come in with um, quote unquote, unusual symptoms, odd symptoms, things that don't seem to connect the dots. But in retrospect, if you ask, have you ever had COVID? Were you ever vaccinated? You're going to find that a lot of those are going to be, um, you know, related when we do the, the look back. And I think that's the, the thing, the message we've got to get to the broader public, particularly the public that's reluctant to get vaccinated, is that this is, this is, not, this is not the flu. This is not a cold. This is not a 48-hour disease. Uh, this is a significant disease that a large percentage of people who are unvaccinated get. You can get it again. And it can cause this very, very bad, prolonged chronic disease, which ultimately, in some cases. Medicine doesn't stand still. And at the AMA, neither do we. AMA members are physicians like you who are shaping the future of medicine. Become a member today and join the movement. Visit ama-assn.org slash movingmedicine. cause a significant disability. Dr. Gowner, I bet you have had some substantial experience in developing more with long COVID in your institution. 
Yes, so uh, at NYU, they do have, we have a uh, long COVID clinic, um, but I, I think what is very frustrating in this moment is we still don't really have a good handle on the pathophysiology of what causes long COVID. We have some hints. Um, and so much of the treatment at this stage is largely about managing symptoms. I do think um, with respect to research on long COVID, there are some areas that really should be urgently tested in terms of therapeutics, um, including not just uh, how well vaccines prevent uh, long COVID and whether boosters might um, help further reduce the risk, but also some of the therapies that we currently have. So for example, if you are if you test positive for COVID and you are rapidly initiated on Paxlovid, which is one of the new antiviral drugs uh, for COVID, how much does that reduce your risk of progressing onto long COVID? Does monoclonal antibody treatment also reduce your risk of progressing to long COVID? And there are a number of immune modulators that have also been used for the treatment of severe COVID. Would those also reduce your risk of progressing to long COVID? So I think there's... Um, there are some obvious things like that to try um, drugs that are already approved for other purposes that should also be tested in the treatment of, of long COVID. And then understanding that it may be a while yet before we have really definitive answers as to how best to prevent, with the exception of vaccination, how best to prevent long COVID, how best to treat it. Is it curable? I think you are going to have a lot of people who continue to suffer, uh, who may not be able to work. And how do you then care and support those people? And, and so that does mean needing to think about um, disability, supporting people in that fashion. Uh, we also know that it's the most vulnerable people in society, people we uh, also call our essential workers, who are more likely to be infected. They're also more likely to be low income, less likely to have insurance, and may not easily be able to access care for ongoing chronic symptoms of long COVID. And uh, a program for uninsured persons in this country to access uh, treatment and diagnosis uh, has, has evaporated. Uh, the funding is no longer there. And next week, we will no longer have funding uh, for providers to administer vaccines to uninsured persons. And so these are very important gaps that will definitely have an impact on people who, uh, who have long COVID and who are under or uninsured. Dr. Gounder, you're right. We know that historical injustices were magnified with Black, Indigenous, and other people of color communities severely, disproportionately impacted by COVID-19. To your point, uh, and we're, we're concerned now about funding for further testing treatment available that it could even further uh, disproportionately impact those marginalized communities. What, what strategies can we do beyond, of course, what we're going to do, uh, push for, for continuing uh, funding for that? But whether strategies among this group could y'all recommend that might eliminate policy and systemic barriers and ensure that our COVID-19 response is equitable across all our communities? Well, I think we need to fund public health. I think the health care system is really designed to provide clinical care to individuals. It's not designed, at least right now, to provide population health and to really ensure equity uh, and the care of vulnerable populations. And so I think there's a lot that the public health sector could be doing if um, uh, appropriately funded, staffed, and empowered to do that. Uh, so I think that is uh, one important area. I think the other is understanding that 
Americans are very individualistic and you may not be able to get uh, vaccination rates as high here as in other countries. And so that means thinking a bit about uh, if you're if you're looking at things through an equity lens, how else can we achieve equity? What are the other tools at our disposal? And which of those tools do not rely on individuals to take action, uh, do not rely on individuals to seek something out or comply? And those kinds of interventions are more structural. So things like, as I was mentioning around disability is one, um, providing people with paid sick and family medical leave so that they, if they're sick can stay home and still make rent uh, so that if their child is sick, they can stay home with their child and not be spreading the virus in school. You know, I think unfortunately a lot of families find themselves in a catch 22 where they have to go to work sick they have to send their child to school sick because they have no other affordable option. Uh, another example of a structural kind of intervention uh, that's really important for preventing COVID is improving indoor ventilation and air filtration. Uh, it is not perfect, but you know neither are the vaccines. All of these interventions are additive, synergistic, and by making those kinds of improvements, you can also reduce the risk of transmission in public settings, including schools, government buildings, workplaces. Um, and again, does not require individuals to take action. But these are uh, structural interventions that do cost money in some form. And so that does mean um, having people uh, uh, at a government level or um, for a, an industry to decide this is a priority and to pull resources to make these things happen. I'm worried. I'm worried right now that um, given all of the other attention uh, being given to other issues that are rightly so occurring in this world right now, um, the lack of funding uh, for just basic testing, um, for basic surveillance uh, is a real issue. Uh, and we can't lose our sight on the fact that the pandemic is not yet done. Secondly, uh, funding that was earmarked or targeted towards public health right now is held up at the federal level. Um, that needs to be restored, needs to be built back into some kind of funding mechanism uh, because we, we know that the public health infrastructure is not what it needs to be. But let me just build on something. And again, this is maybe a silver lining um, is that the, the community health centers, the FQHCs, uh, the health systems, public health, um, and actually community centers came together uh, to form vaccine stations, testing stations. Um, and what I saw happen was the ability to actually start sharing information uh, about health-related outcomes, social determinants of health, and getting patients, uh, in my case, patients, community health centers, clients, uh, directed towards resources that they needed, whether it related to food insecurity, uh, related to you know, safety uh, related issues that were being identified at those nexuses where people were coming to get just a vaccine. Um, what I'd like to see built is an infrastructure where there is actual health information exchange occurring between public health, a health system like ours or physician offices and community clinics. Uh, it, we don't want to lose that opportunity. Uh, so I think funding that would allow for that to occur um, at national and state levels is something that we want to build upon um, some of the learnings that we got um, from this whole pandemic effort. Amen, Dr. Freddie. Dr. Benjamin, I bet this is music to your ears. 
to know that our, our panel of experts is, is so supportive of increasing our public health infrastructure. Any specifics you might like to suggest that we could uh, look forward to in a, in a world post-pandemic? Well, I think, you know, in the broader sense, I was, we need to create a health system with everybody in and nobody out. Um, we've talked about the importance of, of, of having this um, system. We're the only industrialized system in the world that does not have um, coverage for all of our citizens. We, ha we have to make sure that happens. Secondly, um, when we have these kinds of um, tragedies at, uh, of a new disease entering the community, we always know what's going to happen. We always know who's going to be impacted first. And yet we don't go into the hood with those services right away. We kind of make the people come to us. So had we gone taken the testing into the hood, had we initially taken vaccinations into the community, those kinds of things would have been dramatic um, in terms of their effort to, to at least begin the process of, of dealing with the disparities. We, we know that um, both exposure because of the jobs these folks did and susceptibility because of the disparities for chronic diseases put those folks more at risk should they have been infected. And of course that played out just as it played out for H1N1, um, for SARS-1, and quite frankly, for all of the uh, disease threats that we have. And so we've got to build systems that are in those communities and that are stronger. So um, Stephen talked about the importance of our community health center network. Uh, we strengthened it during this pandemic. We need to make sure that the resources stay there for that safety net program. We need to improve our um, telemedicine capacity. You know, we had this big debate about whether tele telemedicine should uh, be funded and how much we should do. We put our foot in the water and then the pandemic hit and we, we discovered the wonderfulness of, of utilizing telemedicine tools to provide medical care for folks. We need to make sure that doesn't go away. We have to refine it some so that it's, you know, there, there are some things that we can improve on it. But we need to make sure that physicians have the capacity in their offices um, to engage their patients appropriately. And then I got to tell you, we've got to find a way to free up physician time and effort uh, because physicians, quite frankly, are still spending too much time um, on paperwork, on uh, administrative tasks, when we really ought to have their expertise and wonderfulness at the bedside using that physician-patient relationship to engage their patients, to talk to their patients. You know, when I was in medical school, I was always taught, and I know all, you know, the three of you were as well, that if you sit there, keep your mouth shut, ask an open-ended question and listen to your patient, you can tell what's wrong with them without a single test. And that is still true. Um, so a good history and appropriately targeted physical examination will um, win the day every day. And we need to give physicians the time tools and to do that with their patients. And if we do that, we can improve health and bring down the cost of healthcare. Dr. Benjamin, that's, uh, you're right. That's also sending chills up my spine. That's what I was taught and I still believe it every day. And I, I know all of us do as clinicians. Uh, 15 seconds on each other. If you had any advice for the clinicians uh, and, and if you were king or queen for the day, what would you do to help us recover from the pandemic? Dr. Gounder, what would you do, doctor? Yeah, I think what we have seen in public health is this cycle of uh, panic and neglect. And I really hope that we can, in the future, uh, really support and invest in public health for the long term as something that we need every day. Yeah, amen. Uh, Dr. Prodi, your thoughts, sir? I appreciate your expertise. 
I'm going to leave you with four words. I think we need to take care of each other. Um, we need to come together. Um, so much of the narrative has been divisive um, and we have the opportunity now to come together for each other within the healthcare system and for our patients and the general public. Yes, sir. We really do. Dr. Benjamin, closing comments from you, sir. Yeah, I just think we've got to depoliticize the, um, the process of, of delivering health. Um, health is um, an equal opportunity um, provider for people. Um, disease does not know political um, leanings. And um, I don't care who you are, what your political leanings are. If it hurts people or it kills people, it's mine. And I hope that we can help people um, improve their health and well-being. And if anything didn't tell us the importance of what we do, COVID did. Well, thank all of you. This has been incredibly helpful for me personally as a physician, uh, as president of the AMA. And I hope for all of us, what we've heard from all of our experts is their perspectives, their insight, their experiences, and all of these things that if we can move together in the post-COVID world, and, and we're not yet post-COVID, but we're at least moving into a world that we'll have COVID as a part of, let's take this as a, a source of trust, a source of advice, a source of help for all of us. And I heard the words from my colleagues that I'll take to heart and certainly embrace. Thank you, each of you, for all you do, uh, have been doing, and will continue to do. It's an honor to be among all of you. Thank you. Subscribe to other great AMA podcasts available wherever you listen to yours, or visit ama-assn.org slash podcasts. Thank you for listening.